You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK principal David Leach. David, how are you? Giles, I'm very well and uh, we'll be talking politics this week, but uh, energy politics. Well, we hope so. Yes, in fact, we might as well just go straight there because um, we have just recorded before we're having this little conversation between ourselves an interview with the Greens leader, Adam Bant. And of course, we are in what many people would consider either an election year or an election 12 months. That is, there's a high probability of it happening within the next 12 to 13 months. It does have to be held in the next 15 or 16 months, I think. So anyway... Politics comes back and so does policies. Let's have the uh, a listen to this interview with Adam Bant. Adam Bant, uh, thank you very much for joining in the Energy Insiders podcast. Thanks for having me on. Well, particularly so at the end of what by any means has been quite an extraordinary week in politics and a um, stressful and exhausting one for many people both in and out of the political arena. Before we go and get you to outline and remind our listeners where exactly the Greens stand on climate and energy policy, I did have one question which kind of arises after the, um, from the last week. And it's a sort of this, um, as has been remarked by some people, this lack of curiosity, this um, the failure to read documents and um, and to get full briefings. And it just occurred to me, and well, it one. I wondered, we have a government which is taking us towards a certain direction where while the whole world is thinking about this clean energy transition and zero emissions and um, the electrification of transport. We hear that from investors, from economists, from engineers, from big companies. Our government, federal government, seems to be going in the opposite direction. I'm just wondering, do we still attribute this to a lack of curiosity about documentation and, uh, and research or... Do you think it's still a matter of ideology? Yeah, I think it's more malevolent. Um, I think they know full well what they're doing. And I think it's a large part to do with uh, big, with corporate donations, with political donations and the fact that, you know, just in the last 12 months, Liberal and Labor took about a million dollars from fossil fuel companies. And I think the, um, there's a revolving door, certainly, between the government and the ministerial advisors and the fossil fuel industry. So I think there's a big element of um, corporate capture by the existing interests, and they exercise that influence through political donations. And they're largely, those, those existing big incumbents are largely getting what they pay for. And so I think the government knows full well um, what it's doing and is choosing to take us in a different direction because of that influence. How do we break that apart from voting in uh, another government? Well, I think elections are obviously important and voting is critical and the only time that we've seen pollution come down in this country is when Greens and Labor and independents cooperated and we put the price on pollution and we got the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and ARENA into existence along with some other things like the Carbon Farming Initiative and it worked and we had world-leading legislation in this country. Um, along came 
those fossil fuel industries and Tony Abbott and Rupert Murdoch and together they tore down parts of it but not but not all of it uh, I think uh, there is now a much greater appetite than perhaps there even was in 2010 and certainly than there was in 2013 for action on climate and I think the next election in particular is going to be one to watch because we've got I think there's a real chance of another power sharing parliament especially when you look at the crossbench that uh, we've got sitting in the parliament and my independent colleagues that got sitting alongside me who have got climate policies that are that in many instances are very science-based and uh, they come from regional and city electorates i think with a finely balanced parliament like we've got at the moment and with a crossbench including the Greens, but also some independents that are very forward-leaning on climate and renewables. I reckon there's a real chance that next election could be uh, one that unlocks some pretty significant action in Australia. So, Adam, I might ask uh, just quickly, in this current parliament, um, and there's always hopes for other parliaments, but in this current parliament, there's the climate change bill uh, what do you, I, I, I guess we few of us think it's got much realistic chance of progressing at the moment. Well, I think the um, you, you never know in politics. You, you push and push and push, and they say no and no and no, and then all of a sudden they turn around and say yes and pretend it was their idea all along. That's certainly been uh, the Greens' experience on a, on a number of issues um, uh, you know, outside of the energy sector, things like marriage equality or an independent corruption commission, all of those things were, were pushed for ages and they said no and then they turned around and adopted it and pretended it was their policy. And I, I feel that at the moment, the uh, I feel more optimistic about climate action and renewables action in Australia uh, at the start of this year or in, in 2021 than I have for some time. I think with the election of Biden in the US and with the um, the shift that's taking place in some of the state governments, I just feel increasingly that the uh, the prime minister has thoroughly mispositioned himself on this and is rapidly playing catch up. And now with talk of you know the like of carbon tariffs being introduced against countries like Australia, and a carbon price now um, being the, the lack of a carbon price in Australia now being a threat to our exporters and a threat to our agricultural industry, the fact that we're so far behind. It feels to me that the stars are aligning in a way that they haven't for a while. And I think um, you look at what Boris Johnson has done in the United Kingdom and uh, he's he's really he's a conservative government that I don't agree with on pretty much most things, but has come out and called for 68% cuts by uh, in emissions by 2030. And that probably you know, might have been unthinkable a year ago. And you might say, is he doing it because it's uh, a way of distracting attention from the, the, the performance in the pandemic, or is he doing it for the good reasons of trying to recover from the pandemic? In a sense, I don't think it really matters. Um, if we can bring pressure to bear, then I hope that there's the prospect, even before the next election, of forcing a bit of a shift uh, from this government. But I do think the way that we're going to get the action that the science needs is by turfing them out and putting the Greens in balance of power. Yes, so I'll just grab one more quick thing before I hand back to Charles, and I will observe in passing that Australia exports about $20 billion worth of goods and services to Europe. 
and of that total, $7 billion represents gold, which uh, Boston Consulting Group uh, identified as one of the products where profits would be most uh, impacted uh, were a carbon tax to be introduced. And then you mentioned Biden, and then, of course, we're going to see tomorrow China's most uh, newest attempts at, at, at what they're going to do. And then there's the European uh, Green Deal as well. So there's certainly a lot of happening internationally. But if we talk about, uh, I hesitate to use the phrase, real politic, and the Greens have been, uh, I won't say stuck, but have achieved a level of 10%, uh, and that's great nationally. And we know the 70% national support, say, for things on climate change. But when push comes to shove in the lower house, it gets down to Queensland and uh, there's no more, um, uh, you know, it's Scott Morrison is only doing what the Queensland members of Cabinet and Parliament want him to do. And they, they are the biggest block of the, co of the coalition in Parliament uh, and they essentially run the party. And I don't see that it matters that much what the rest of everyone else wants, so long as that's the case. I just wondered if you had a, had a succinct view on that. Well, the... Um, it, it... In many respects, you're right, but in other respects, the government wants to hold on to power and they're losing seats to people uh, like Zali Stegall, where it was formerly held by Tony Abbott's seat. Now, you know, just think about that shift. And uh, there are also, I, I was campaigning here in inner city Melbourne at the last election and the, uh, the seat of Kuyong, where the Greens were in with a shot of winning that seat and came very close. The government spent a million dollars to hold that seat and they told everyone how much they loved renewable energy and um, uh, and were taking action on climate change. And I think there's a bit of a, a misnomer that, that climate change somehow uh, cost Labor the last election or somehow that the, uh, the Liberals, uh, that, that, that if it was a referendum on climate change, that somehow the result suggests that people don't want to take action. I think the opposite happened. I think that going into the last election, uh, the coalition was very well aware, not only of seats in Queensland, but also of seats in inner city Sydney or uh, inner city Melbourne, where they, there were conservative constituents who wanted climate action. And the Prime Minister stopped his outright climate denialism and all of a sudden turned around and started saying, oh, I actually care about climate action, but don't worry, I'm taking, um, I'm taking steps to fix it. And I think that uh, the, both the Coalition and Labor run the risk of trying to rerun the last election next time around. And I think things have moved on and I think that um, they've, got to, they've got to win seats not only in Queensland but right across the country. And I don't think that same, same kind of denialism is, is going to wash again. What do you make of the latest moves um, with the Labor Party? They've um, shunted Mark Bat Butler out of the portfolio and back to health and replaced him with Chris Bowen, the uh, former Treasury spokesman. Um, is that a step forward, a step back? Is it too early to know? And what do you think your chances are if there is a balance of power or if you do, if the Greens and other independents do hold a balance of power of creating a constructive dialogue and arrangement with them um, in, in, in a new parliament? Well, with respect to the first question, you know, when Joel Fitzgibbon gets what he wants, it's really a good thing. And he has managed to um, not only shift who has the climate portfolio in Labor, but also what they stand for. And we're seeing that the policy now, the draft policy going to the Labor conference, 
that is explicitly endorsing the opening up of new gas projects. Now, in the middle of a climate emergency, there is no scope to open up new gas fields. The discussion should be about how do we phase out existing coal and gas. And instead, we now have basically Labor and Liberal taking draft policies or in, uh, formal government policies to say, let's, um, let's open up even more gas projects. And we are talking about countries' worth of emissions uh, in the Beetaloo Basin alone if that project is able to, if that is ever unlocked. And we've just had an update to the way the government calculates its own emissions figures that starts to take account of the real climate damage caused by methane that has basically seen an additional six months' worth of pollution added to Australia's accounts. So I'm very, very disappointed that there's, uh, that both Labor and Liberal are putting their foot on the gas. And also what gets me about one of the things that gets me about the gas um, the gas led recovery from Morrison or the talk about gas from Labor is that they're not talking about gas instead of coal they're talking about gas as well as coal there's still no plan from Liberal or Labor to phase out existing coal-fired power stations which is the biggest um, barrier to getting us to 100% renewables and also to bringing down our pollution in terms of what would happen in a shared power parliament I think uh, there's, uh, again, I feel quite optimistic about that because I feel that uh, whatever is said by Liberal and Labor during the course of an election campaign, when we are in shared power parliament and the reality of this um, Biden-Kerry world where you have the head of um, you know, the United States saying, calling climate change an existential crisis, and also this understanding from John Kerry that we can't open up new gas fields and uh, that all science-based targets need to be worked around two degrees. Um, the thing that gives me some hope is that there is still a commitment to the Paris Agreement, there is still a commitment to those two or one and a half degree goals, and I feel that from that perspective, we could actually work quite well with Labor and perhaps with some climate-friendly independence if we needed to, to get something that is in accordance with the science. Mm. Let's maybe just let, let's, let's take this opportunity to do what we um, were planning to do at the start, which is actually just um, give us the top headlines of the Greens policy. I mean, it's um, my understanding is it's the it's the 1.5 degrees out of Paris climate. It's 350 parts per million. It's 100% renewables as soon as possible. I don't know whether you've actually got a date for that or or, or whatever. Um, have I got that bit wrong? And um, what is, no, no, that's, yeah. that's right. I mean, ours is based around. Uh, still working towards keeping limiting global warming to below one and a half degrees, and hopefully we can do that without significant overshoot. Uh, and I know that some you know, work's being done on that at the moment, but certainly as the science is now, there's a chance of doing that without significant overshoot. And so that means 75% reduction in Australia's emissions by 2030, and net zero by 2035. That would be cons that they would be targets consistent with one and a half degrees, which of course is what our um, uh, amongst other things, our Pacific Island neighbours are saying is an existential threat for them. Uh, get to 100% renewables within electricity by 2030 with a regulated coal phase-out, so a timetable for the phase-out of our coal-fired power stations between now and 2030. Uh, and, 20, and also, by, for us, 2030 is a key date, and by then there would be 100% uh, of new vehicle sales being electric by 2030 as well. And key for us too, we meant, you mentioned exports at the start, is that this decade, by between now and 2030, 
we have to also phase out uh, thermal coal exports between now and 2030. We just know that they're being burnt around the world at an unsustainable rate in a way that harms Australia and you know, harms the rest of the world as well. Um, we obviously want to see an expansion of uh, storage in particular, and we put forward some, uh, we propose legislated storage targets at the large scale and at the small scale. And one of the, the best things about it is you could fund a lot of it just by stopping subsidising the fossil fuel industry. So apart from the diesel fuel rebate for farmers, and there's a there's a rationale for that staying, we want to phase out uh, fossil fuel subsidies in part to help fund the transition to uh, uh, to, to meet the targets I've just spoken about. So, Adam, Adam, you know, those policies all sound reasonably sensible, and I'm sure you'd have something to say about electric vehicles and other things as well that would be equally sensible. In politics, my understanding, and I should declare an interest in that my dad, who died in 1988, was a state member in New South Wales, uh, uh, it does seem to me that Australia is very much a middle ground uh, uh, type of electorate and the green vote has been on about 10% for a long time and I, I guess people vote green because they like the environmental policies but you know it's if I just look talk broadly about what your ambitions are for the Greens to grow their vote. I mean, you know, one thing that gets talked about sometimes is Labor and the Greens should get closer together. I'm sure you two see each other as mortal enemies on, on, on another front. There's been lots of divisiveness in state Greens, particularly in New South Wales, and what I would regard as some fairly fringe policies in the, historically. Uh, that's me. Uh, I just wondered if you could comment generally on what, what, what your broader agenda is for, for broadening the appeal of the Greens to the electorate. Well, I think the experience in the ACT has been terrific, where you've got Labor and Greens who've held government now for a number of years, and the Greens have had a number of ministry positions, which has just expanded after we uh, grew our seats from two to six at the last election, where you have a, um, a, a Labor chief minister and you have the Greens running a number of portfolios, including the energy portfolio. And the ACT's got to 100% renewables, they're tackling gas, they've got a big EV strategy and people like it and we're continuing to get uh, get returned. And so, and one of the things that, that I want, and you look across at New Zealand, for example, as well, where you've got that level of cooperation happening and it's bearing results. And one of the things that I remind people, including in Melbourne, but the message I guess I want to take across the country is that, yeah, going back to that 2010 parliament, when we worked together, uh, we did either of us get exactly what we wanted? No. But did we write the first chapter in uh, Australia's emissions reduction and take up of renewables? Absolutely we did. And the uh, I think there was a lot said about that time, including you know, in the Murdoch press and so on. But looking back at it, it was the time that we brought down pollution. And so... Uh, that message, I think, to say to people, we're, uh, it won't work without us uh, being in that position of balance of power because otherwise everything will just revert to type and they'll get their own way. But put us there and we can deliver. That's the message that I'll be taking that, that I hope will help us grow our vote. The um, targets of 100% renewables by 2030 and 100% electric cars, I mean, they're, they're ones that I endorse, but um, I'm just wondering whether you're confident that Australia still has the smarts and the capacity to actually achieve that scale of transition in what is a, um, a rapidly decreasing um, 
time frame. Yeah, of course we do. Absolutely. And this is the thing that, you know, the government talks about the technology roadmap. The technology's there. Like the technology exists. What we need is a plan to put it in place. And costs of uh, renewables have come down so substantially, as I'm sure your listeners know, that it's now making significant economic sense to do it as well. And you look at the, the all of the car makers who've now pledged that by 2030 or 2035, they're only going to be selling electric vehicles. And you only have to just cast forward a decade and think that the alternative for Australia is that we become the, the world's dumping ground for dirty, polluting cars that no one else wants. And there's a very, very real... Um, risk I think that Australia is going to be left behind and I think getting that message out there that uh, the rest of the world is moving and we've got the opportunity we've got some significant opportunities but also some significant downside risks if we don't act is key and you know when the government the, the current government dismantled the automotive uh, assistance scheme that was keeping some of the big car makers here we pushed strongly to say look let's um, let's find some budget savings by uh, repurposing some of it that you've already accounted for and put it into supporting the manufacture of electric vehicles here in Australia and the government didn't want to know about it. And now, all of a sudden, post-COVID, the, the talk is about our uh, manufacturing self-sufficiency, and they've missed some, some great opportunities to do that along the way. But as to your point about the state of the Australian public, I think people really like it when Australia punches above its weight. I think people love institutions like CSIRO are still, still have massive public support. And the idea that we could make make electric cars here or make components that are used in electric cars here around the world and that that would be a uh, the kind of manufacturing industry that we could have that that is high value i think people would love that idea personally and you know i speak as someone I come from a family where it was a um it was a band that invented the ute and the idea <laughs> of the if you go outside down uh, head outside on the bypass outside geelong you'll go past the lewis band bridge and i think you know australia's innovation when it comes to the car and 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 vehicles is something that I take pretty personally and I think we could do it again. You remind me, uh, uh, it's great to hear those stories. Uh, I love to hear about the Lewis Bant Bridge and stuff like that and Australian know-how and I think many Australians know that and uh, Australians want to vote for some uh, people that are going to achieve things and have goals and ambitions and have an, do have an agenda uh, provided it doesn't go too far. I, you mentioned it, I just wondered just briefly beyond the energy policy landscape, what about in, in regard to policies in regard to, say, education and the arts and other areas that I feel uh, the major parties like the Liberal and the Labor Party both seem to have ignored uh, what you might call the very broad fourth and fifth estates of, of, of people? Teaching is a low emissions job. And, I mean, we should we should expand and push for free education and expand teaching and education, which is part of the Greens policy, is to um, wind back those subsidies that we're giving to the big polluting industries and instead invest it in the smart care and education-based low emissions industries, which, yes, include energy, but also include things like teaching, expanding aged care. Um, the money's there if we have the guts to stand up to those big corporations on the fossil fuel side who at the moment get to write policy and get to write themselves some pretty hefty meal tickets uh, courtesy of the public purse. But again, like what, what kind of country are we going to be in the 21st century? I don't want us to be to wake up in 10 years' time to find we're a hollow, 
hollowed out quarry that the rest of the world doesn't want to talk to. Um, we need to have something to sell the rest of the world. And this is where also uh, I think there's opportunities, and you know, I say this as a green, I think there's opportunities in some of our mining areas uh, for, for not in the fossil fuel based areas, but in things like lithium, um, we've got the capacity to be um, mining and value adding here and then exporting products to a zero carbon world. But we've also got the opportunity to make sure that we look after each other in this wealthy country. And that is, as I say, an, another way of actually bringing down emissions as well. Adam, I've just been Googling um, um, Lewis Bantam as you've been speaking, actually. And yeah, it's fascinating. The kangaroo chaser, I think, this was caught. Um, what's, what's, what's the link? Is it just a common name or is it part of the same family? No, there's a, there's a, a family connection. It's a, um, it's a different side of the family to mine, but it all, it all does stem from the same, um, the same bands who originally arrived in South Australia getting off a, uh, a ship from... Germany back in the 1850s and then spread out to different parts of the country and the story goes that someone came to him and said that they wanted something that could uh, take the pigs to the market on Saturday and his wife to church on Sunday and could someone please design a vehicle that would do it. You know, sadly, he was only an employee of Ford, so didn't get to enjoy any of the riches that came from the development of the <laughs> Ute, but that's as I understand the story. Well, look, I'm just hoping then that maybe the arrival of the electric ute, and we might see that in the form of a Rivian or even the Tesla um, in, in a couple of years' time, may actually be that sort of transformative thing that needs to happen in the Australian market to actually sort of make that transition that you've been talking about. Um, I've got a couple of other questions, and David might have um, one or two more, but um, I'm just fascinated by what your assessment of what's happening at state levels. Um, it's, it seems extraordinary now that we actually have the most ambitious policies coming from the South Australian and the Tasmanian government, both of them liberal, possibly both of them um, um, benefiting from the fact that they don't actually have any coal industries in their, in their local in the local states. And um, we've just recently seen Zach Zach Kirkup from WA, the WA Liberals. Now he, he acknowledges he doesn't have a snowflake's chance in the hell of actually winning the election, but he did come up with a 100% renewable policy by 2030 and coal out the door by 2025. Um, what's happening there and why isn't there that connect at, um, um, at federal level? Yeah, good question. And again, the, the ACT government, the Greens and Labor there have kind of led the way and have been right out in front. And so I would say it's at that state level, that's where it has been led. And now some of the others are, are moving towards that, which I think is great. And uh, whoever wants to move towards it, I think it's great. In the SA, I think, of course, the picture is probably a little more complicated because a lot of the heavy lifting was done by the previous government, but it's been continued by um, this one, which is... Uh, to to the government's credit, and I think that perhaps the you know the massively falling cost of renewables and um, the understanding of the the opportunities, including potential export opportunities, is uh, is starting to hit. And as people think about what uh, the Australian economy and what their own state's economy might look like, they're seeing the opportunities there. Uh, again, I don't mind who's who's going to follow the ACT's lead, whether it's Liberal or Labor. I think it'd be great. Uh, I'm just happy that they're picking it up. Um, I do think that there's... Uh, I think Queensland is lagging. I think Queensland Labor is really lagging and I don't think they've got a plan to meet their targets. And I think that, coming back to some of the point that was made before, I think there is still a grip of uh, the old industries in Queensland, which, again, given Queensland's potential, 
potential for exporting liquid hydrogen or potential for uh, exporting even renewables, I think is very sad. And again, I think it goes back to um, the power of, uh, of money in politics. But yeah, if, if someone um, of whatever particular stripe wants to start working towards 100% renewables, I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. One caveat, though, can I just say about what is happening at the state level is that um, it, it's easy to talk up renewables, but you also need a plan to pull out coal and gas. And like from the from the climate perspective, um, if we all we do is build renewables on top of existing coal and gas, then then the pollution continues. And uh, it's what distresses me. And again, I think New South Wales here. I would include the New South Wales government in this. Is that they don't have a plan to retire the coal-fired power stations, uh, other than just to leave it to their their, their nominal use-by date, and that is pushed out so far past 2030, past even 2035, out into 2040s in some instances, that that takes us over the climate cliff. So you know, some sticks mm-hmm. to those state governments that are taking action, but until you have a plan to phase out coal and gas, it's not going to do what's needed. We're going to to, uh, run out of time very shortly and uh, grateful for your time. I just wanted to ask a more general question of, uh, again, you know, you mentioned Australian manufacturing, which is a topic uh, dear to my heart. Uh, And, you know, we always think that people vote for the economy as much as they vote for anything. What in the Greens policy, you know, would cause, I don't know, manufacturing industry to think that the Greens were a good good party or, or the man in the street to think that the Greens would, would be good for the economy, leaving aside that there might be a carbon tax or, 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 or whatever? We want to set up a Manufacturing Australia Fund in part based on um, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation model that is uh, that will assist the uh, development and commercialisation of Australian manufacturing and including expanding green steel and green hydrogen. We think there's massive opportunities in green steel and conveniently and fortunately in a lot of the areas where the coal-fired power stations have to be retired. And we've got uh, really thought out plans to assist industry switch from gas because I think getting off gas and onto electricity at the moment is going to save industry a lot of money but at the moment a lot of the barriers including for upfront costs are there so uh, there is what's um, preventing it and um, if government can step in and assist industry to fuel switch then I think they're going to, we're going to save industry money and also turn Australia into a place where you can come to to manufacture your goods and know it's powered by clean cheap energy so we've um, thought through and have been advancing for some time a significant suite of manufacturing policies that i think would would do well for the country i've got one final question adam Um, what's your reading about when the next election will happen and um let's say it does happen um when it does happen um if there is a hung parliament the greens can negotiate with labor what will be the top of your priorities uh, we're planning for it to happen this year, and uh, the I don't know whether that has uh, whether anything that's happened over the last month or two months is going to change that. But we're uh, working on the presumption that it's going to happen this year, and we, we're getting ourselves um, uh, ready for that. What's going to be our top priorities? Our top priority is going to be climate action, and we want we think if we can get agreement to working towards a one and a half degree goal. 
then things flow backwards from there. Things like targets, things like the changes that we need to make, things like assistance that we need to give to our industry uh, to transition, all of those things flow backwards from there. So that um, plus uh, making uh, many of the, the big corporations at the moment that pay no tax and then go and get handouts for things like the diesel fuel rebate, making those big uh, corporations that are largely fossil fuel exporters uh, users and exporters, making them pay their fair share of tax to help us fund the renewables transition. Excellent stuff. Um, Adam Bant, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thanks for having me on. And that was Adam Bant, the Greens leader. Um, look, uh, politics is getting exhausting at the moment, um, David, but um, one of the things that I guess the big question is, and look, maybe it doesn't really matter, um, you know, these these very ambitious targets, 100% renewables by 2030, 100% electric vehicle uptake by 2030. Of course, we see countries, they sound incredibly ambitious. We see countries, though, like the UK, talking about no um, petrol diesel car sales by 2030. We see the US now trying to enshrine a, um, uh, a clean um, electricity grid by uh, 2035. Is Australia really capable of making the transition um, as a small, isolated country? Um, we're smart people, but do we have the smarts and everything that we need to actually get there if we really wanted to and started now? Look, we live in a global village, uh, Giles. Uh, that's the fact of the matter. And, uh, you know, free trade is what's helped to make a lot of people around the world richer. It's made some richer than other, others. If I can, well, you know, when I say richer, improve people's lives. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's quite possible for Australia to have design excellence and, and production to take place in Vietnam. Uh, you know, manufacturing is a global process. We've got a lot of raw materials. We've got a lot of natural energy sources in the way of uh, wind and solar. We've got everything except water. The only uh, issue for Australia has always been around firming power as far as that goes. Otherwise, we could be entirely self-sufficient. And uh, this is where the sort of federal camp bubble, which is so completely unrealistic, as we've seen with the uh, um, uh, amendments to the Clean Energy Finance Corporation legislation that were recently withdrawn after the after the totally wacko off the planet nationals, uh, try, you know, people talk about the Greens as being extreme, but <laughs> in my opinion, the nationals are far more extreme and with far less science to it. Um, uh, trying to introduce carbon capture and storage and more gas powered power plants, it's just not anything that anyone else in Australia, including their own constituency, wants. Hang on, so, talking about carbon capture and storage and gas, I think that was the uh, Labor draft policy unveiled this week, wasn't it? Oh, and the, and the Labor Party's no better. I mean, uh, quite frankly, they com they completely lack ambition. And uh, at, at the same time, it has to be said that uh, uh, the two-party preferred vote while we're talking politics is, is actually very close at the moment. But again, that's nationally, and it doesn't really... The elections aren't decided on the national two-party vote. The elections mm. aren't decided by the fact that 70% of people want more action on climate change. The elections are decided by about uh, less than half a million voters in, in Queensland. That's what it really comes down to. Guess back though, um, we do live in a global village and everything like that, and we do have these most wonderful resources, and we have so much capacity lined up. I mean, our EMO tells us that, all the developers and all the analysts tells us that. I mean, these, you know, there's tens of gigawatts of wind and solar projects waiting to be connected, and battery storage and things like that. But that's exactly it. They're waiting to be connected, and they're waiting for networks and grids to be constructed. It doesn't look like we're getting anywhere fast with any of these projects. No, and so it's true. The um, uh, and the Energy Connect thing is bogged down in the fact that the the uh, transmission line 
uh, it costs more than uh, what was modelled and therefore the impact on prices is going to be different and it gets down to the fact it was done on the old legislation with the exist the old RIT test, regulatory investment test, which is, has always been a very difficult test to to satisfy. And at the same time, all the time, we get this ever-increasing um, uh, behind-the-meter sector and more and more local generation. So the alternative uh, to the transmission line continues to increase in value. Uh, mm -hmm. with, uh, and, 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 and these are difficult things, uh, really. You know, uh, my, my own opinion is that there's still not enough forward thinking uh, from AEMO in, in, in the basics of the future grid. Whilst I, I support the new transition, always have, and, and will continue to do so, I think a, more fundamental foundations need to be placed under it in view of the growth of the behind-the-meter sector. Well, it'll be interesting to see um, how they're going. One thing we did see from AEMO this week, apart from their letter to the Australian Energy Regulator, which was sort of co-authored um, by the New South Wales and South Australian ministers, sort of frustrated with, you know, this sort of this pace um, and this sort of approvals process for Project Energy Connect, which you've just described, and put a major caveat on because of the increase in costs. But another thing that we saw from AEMO this week, and it's, um, you know, in the context of the political decisions about, you know, gas and CCS, AEMO had been, well, they weren't requested, but they thought that was their duty to sort of model what sort of, you know, prevailing policies were. And of course, there's this gas-led transition or this gas-led recovery and stuff like that. So they started to model that and sort of thought, got feedback from all the different uh, players. It was quite interesting. From the top all the way down, all the, basically the, the majority of the energy market said, you've got to be kidding, that's just not plausible at all, that's not going to work, and it's all very well to talk about gas, but where are you going to get cheap gas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it looks like they're actually going to drop that whole scenario. It's completely unrealistic and um, go further on their sort of 1.5 degree scenario, which I'm sure would please Adam Bant and the Greens and other people who think that we should be getting there as well. But um, fascinating to see that you've still got these polit major political parties pushing one thing, and you've got the engine and the experts and the investors just were saying, nah, forget it, really. <laughs> There's a lot of money uh, lined up behind the gas lobby, as there is behind the renewables lobby, as there is behind the coal lobby. They, they've all got their uh, lobby groups uh, going for them. Uh, uh, you know, and there is a role for gas at the moment until hydrogen falls in price dramatically and demonstrates its commerciality, which it has is far from doing yet. But uh, until that happens, there's a role for gas, in, uh, I think, in providing power uh, at the uh, you know for those winter nights, but it doesn't actually use much gas. That's the point about it. You don't need it. Doesn't in one sense it doesn't matter how expensive the gas is because you won't need that much of it. But the yeah. idea that gas can greatly expand is is ridiculous. And in fact, substitution for gas is going on uh, in various places. And one of the most interesting ones to me is the Copper String Two project. As some people may know, uh, Mount Isa, which has got I, I forget somewhere between two and four hundred megawatts of uh, demand, is not actually connected to the national grid. Uh, and it has a gas Diamantina power station that APA spent uh, probably over $50 million refurbishment. Because, and why have they done that? Because they're dead worried about the threat of uh, 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 transmission being connected to Mount Isa and being able to operate, offer the electricity more cheaply uh, to the mines operators in the region, Glencore principally, and such that Glen Glencore might be uh, incentivized to offer a contract. So there was some early works done on that. Uh, announced uh, some early contracts on that, and it's got support from the federal and the state governments. So that, that's that's quite a gas versus the grid uh, thing to, to keep an eye on.
Yes, in fact, there's probably no better example of it in, 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 in Australia, in fact. And if you go back a few years, it was interesting, that decision that was allowed by Labor to be made by um, Extrata or Glencore, or the Glencore or Extrata, whatever they were called at the time, and they chose to go with gas rather than putting in the loan from renewables. And now they've obviously come to regret that decision. One final thing before we go, um, David, and you did um, uh, make a quick allusion to this in the discussion with um, Adam Bans, and that's about China. Um, I'm presuming what you're talking about is its next five-year plan. Um, tell us very briefly briefly what it is and what we ex might expect to see. Well, I, I don't know what to expect to see, but I know that the uh, there's discussion that the, the China's been working has five year plans, and the next five years of uh, is of critical. They're always important plans, uh, but this plan is particularly important because it's likely to see a pivot away from the expansion of coal generation, and it's likely to see a pivot away from coal intensive steel and aluminium. Uh, and in fact, that primary manufacturing growth is likely to be restricted. And an article I was reading today suggests that uh, steel and um, aluminium prices are already increasing as much as renewable energy shares all around the world have gone up as as the market tries to anticipate what that policy is going, going to uh, uh, contain. So it, it is something that those of us that take an interest in, you know, think global, act local, is, remains the primary strategy for all of us, uh, that you, you, China's a big thing. We need to keep a very close eye on it. And Giles, this podcast, we're not talking as much as I'd like to about electric vehicles and how stupid the federal government is on that area. But that's something we can return to next time, I hope. Yeah, let's do exactly that. Um, thank you very much, David. Um, once again, um, very enjoyable discussion with Adam Bant and yourself. Um, thanks also to our sponsors, um, Pylon and Evergen, and also to all the listeners who are tuned in to this podcast. Please give us your feedback. Um, please also tune into the Solar Insiders podcast and also the Driven podcast, which does discuss some electric vehicle um, things and is held um, once a fortnight. Um, bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.